Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we are joined by Bobby Barnes, head of Quantitative Index Solutions. Bobby discusses the implications of Canadian GDP growth in the first quarter, the impact of the debt ceiling agreement on investors, and which market factors he sees people gravitating towards. Canada GDP growth was up 3.1% in the first quarter, which Bobby says indicates two thoughts. Things are going well in the economy, but also that the Fed hasn't been doing a great job at slowing market tightness. In addition, current futures continue to forecast that over the next few months, investors can expect at least another quarter basis point hike. Bobby explains that the most visible impacts of the debt ceiling agreement can be seen in general market volatility, generated by uncertainty over whether the deal would get done. When it comes to long-term prospects, however, he doesn't believe that near-term volatility will carry forward. Turning to factor investing, Bobby looks at various drivers of risk and return, including the value of a company, the performance of its stocks, and its profitability over time. This episode was recorded on June 2, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So let's start off with the big news, the big job numbers out of the U.S., which actually comes on the heels of also a big economic number in Canada. GDP growth in in the first quarter was up 3.1%. I thought things were supposed to be slowing down. What's going on here? Yeah, it was quite uh, quite a surprise um, with the jobs number. Um, I haven't had a chance to really decompose and to see where all that growth uh, came from. But on balance, it obviously uh, suggests that things are going very well. Um, It also does suggest that the Fed is not doing um, a great job at their mandate of trying to slow the uh, labor market tightness. Um, And so if you look at the Fed futures uh, as a result of that print, um, I think it provides one way for there to be another uh, increase either this month uh, or uh, next month in July. I think um, the current futures are forecasting that between the two months collectively, you'll get at least another quarter basis point uh, hike between now and then. So what do you think that means? I mean, yeah, I think everyone was sort of expecting a bigger pause. The bond market had been even expecting some cuts now. Uh, So is that expectation of cuts gone? Um, And and what should kind of advisors and investors make of another rise in rates potentially? Well, you know, in terms of the contours of the expectations of of rates going into the future, uh, the bond market is still calling for a pause uh, at or around this summer. So between now and call it August or so. Uh, but then as we get into the back end of the year, uh, it's still forecasting for there to uh, be rate cuts. Um, and, and so obviously, you know, they're going to need some economic weakness in order for that to happen. But that's still, as it pertains to the bond market, still what the, uh, that market is pricing in. Um, you know, that being said, you know, there's I think there's a lot of cross currents that, uh, you know, obfuscate whether things are good or not. You know, you if you look at, you know, as, as you know, we're look, look at the S&P 500, for example, year to date. Uh, as, I, as I speak right now, we're literally at year-to-date highs in the market, which suggests on balance 
uh, that things are good. Uh, but as I look at um, different things underneath the hood, uh, I still see suggestions of uh, economic weakness uh, as we get into the back half of this year. So let's talk more about that. What are you looking at and what, what signs are you paying attention to? Yeah. So, for example, let me start with, you know, the, the S&P 500, as I mentioned, and how it's at year-to-date highs. Again, it's a cap-weighted index, uh, and so the largest stocks uh, contribute the most to that return. Um, but when you look at how the average stock, uh, for example, is doing within the S&P 500, you get a very different answer. Uh, and so um, even though uh, year-to-date, I think we're at, you know, up about 10% uh, on the aggregate level itself, um, the most stocks, uh, you know, over half of the stocks are actually down this year. And so if you, you know, put that into the context, you know, 2022, which we all remember was a very rough year. Uh, the overall market was down, um, I think, 18 to 19% in a year. Most stocks in the S&P 500 have continued that downward trend, um, similar at the sector level, where, you know, most of the outperformance we've seen uh, year to date uh, has been driven by just, uh, you know, mainly two sectors, tech, comm services, uh, you know, um, uh, explicitly speaking, four, only four out of the seven uh, gig sectors are up year to date. The other seven are all down. Um, and so that's more in line with the economic weakness that you uh, uh, see when you either look at the returns or if you look at just economic activity, you know, as uh, my favorite go-to is the ISM, uh, which we just got a, a print yesterday. Um, and so we've, I think for the sixth month in a row, we've had yet another sub 50 print. Um, you know, weakness uh, was seen in backlogs and in inventories. And so although, you know, the market might feel uh, good, especially when looking at it at, a, at the top level, uh, there's certainly evidence underneath uh, that things aren't as rosy as you would otherwise think. I mean, it's obviously impossible to predict what's going to happen next, but um, if there is a recession, and, and there are a lot of people still thinking there may be, what does that look like when you see these kind of, uh, you know, the numbers you're talking about, but then on the other hand, you see stronger economic growth. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on how this recession, if it does materialize, could look? Yeah, and that's a question that, you know, I get quite a lot, and I think we've all been debating. Is it going to be a soft one, or is it a hard one, or is it going to be one at all? And so, you know, to that end, I would uh, share a couple of thoughts. Um, uh, first, I would acknowledge that I think a lot of us are still licking our wounds from the, the most two recent sessions that we went through. You know, both of them, whether it be the COVID one or the uh, great financial crisis, you know, these were exogenous shocks that, you know, all of a sudden we were firing millions of people, you know, by the day, right? Um, but that's, those aren't normal, what I would call quote unquote normal recessions. I mean, if you look at the prior two recessions prior to that, say um, the dot-com recession, which uh, certainly I think felt painful, particularly for those, you know, in, um, on Wall Street and focused on tech uh, in particular within that. Uh, but Main Street, you know, it was a slow uh, deterioration in economic activity, but wasn't uh, that painful. And, you know, in terms of unemployment, uh, you know, it did go up, but it only went up by about 2% or so. Uh, same thing with the um, uh, recession that we had in uh, 1990, 1991. Um, and, you know, we hardly ever talk about that one, but it was, you know, it wasn't some exogenous shock that, you know, uh, shocked our soul and, and made us all feel uh, feel it in an intense way. Um, and then similarly from an uh, unemployment perspective, uh, again, only went up about, uh, you know, 2% or so uh, compared to, uh, you know, like, you know, the most recent recessions where we literally had a, quadrupling of the number of unemployed people. Um, and so unless we get in, um, an exogenous shock, and, and the thing is, the trick is, you never 
know, I mean, these things are unknowable, right? So unless we get something like that, it isn't my expectation that we're, the economy is just going to have a step function where it just falls off the cliff one day. It's just going to be a slow and gradual type of thing. And, and so, you know, you know, you see that in certain indicators, for example, where if I look at uh, credit card delinquencies, um, you know, those uh, bottomed uh, five quarters ago, uh, I think it was in the summer or fall of 2021, and they have gradually ticked up uh, every quarter since then. Um, and so that's just a slow uh, deterioration, right? Um, and, and so I think that that might be, all things being equal, the type of um, economic weakness that we experience as we get into the back half of 2023 and into maybe perhaps the first quarter of 2024. Yeah, you're right. I think a lot of people do sort of have this anticipation of something terrible happening. Um, so maybe, maybe that's good, that it, that'll be a little more gradual. Um, I just want to uh, uh, talk about a couple other things before we kind of get into how all this stuff is maybe affecting markets and the things you're looking at. But the other big news of the week is obviously the debt ceiling. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so they came to, to an agreement. What do you think of the agreement and, and how could that affect uh, investors, the fact that this deal is now done? So the debt ceiling is one of those things that... Uh, impact stocks in that it makes it makes them volatile in the term um, but in my work you know i haven't found that these sort of things matter that much for the the long-term prospects of of economic activity you know you know to say it differently like you know is your local grocery store going to have more or less you know earnings uh you know pre and post the, the the debt ceiling debate and you know i think the answer there is no um it's it's more you know political than anything else political jawboning where you know, if you think about the debate in and of itself, the, the politicians are really just debating whether or not to uh, pay the bill for the spending that they've already spent. So, of, of course, we're going to, but, you know, they're going to uh, jockey for position and use that as leverage. But then at the end of the day, just come to a deal anyway. So that's kind of what we've experienced. Uh, I think we, we literally signed it, made it through all of Congress this morning. It will hit the president's desk. And so that kind of removes the, the near term volatility that you can get in the market. Like if 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 if, if uh, market participants are antsy about whether or not the deal is going to get uh, done or not. But now that it's done, um, you know, it kind of removes that uh, out of the calculus. And now people can really focus on what really matters stocks, which is what, what the earnings are going to be. What's the earning, earnings outlook? We look out 12 to 18 months from today. So maybe speaking of that, the last time we talked, we always seem to talk around big events, I feel like, but last time we talked was around the banking crisis. Things were just kind of picking up. Um, where have we gone since since our last conversation, since all that happened? Are there still concerns in the market around the banks, uh, the banking system, or is there anything else that you're noticing that's come out of this that we should be thinking about? Uh, yeah, so it's been an interesting transition since you and I last caught up because we, we literally were on the, the precipice of several banks uh, blowing up. Uh, and so since then, uh, it's, you know, I think things have quieted down a little bit. Um, you know, these banks <clears throat> uh, are, are smaller, relatively speaking, you know, compared to their uh, much larger diversified counterparts. And so it's mostly just these smaller regional banks that, that had trouble. Um, and, and so <clears throat> uh, most of that has, uh, uh, has passed, you know, and the bigger uh, banks have absorbed some of those uh, companies. Um, <clears throat> that being said, and kind of tying this back into my comment about uh, earnings and economic outlook. Uh, one of the bank shots that I think we uh, that will unfold with respect to what we've seen transpire with the banks is uh, less access to or availability to uh, of credit. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the removing of liquidity out of the marketplace, whether it be the cost of money, uh, which is directly influenced by the the, the Fed uh, rate itself, or just banks themselves tightening lending standards. Uh, uh, which we have seen since uh, the banking crisis 
uh, started. And actually some of that was already in play, but then it's accelerated since then. And so that's uh, that's what I think will help contribute, contribute to uh, the slowing growth and perhaps uh, contracting growth as we look ahead um, out to the next 12 months. So taking all this, some volatility, potential recession, um, how are you viewing the markets? Where are investors putting their money these days? What trends have you seen? So an interesting uh, trend that we've seen year to date um, has been a, a lot of hype around AI. And so that's driven a lot of flows and interest into uh, anything related to that, mostly you know, in, in the tech sector. Uh, you know, but that being said, if, if, we, if you put a factor spin on this, uh, you know, the tech sector does tend to have uh, higher profitability uh, compared to, say, cyclical sectors uh, like energy, as an example. Uh, and so that's driven um, a lot of flow and activity year to date. Uh, separate from that, though, I think there's an argument for uh, uh, um, or a bias towards higher quality stocks uh, because of, you know, what I said, just the undercurrent of being in a slowing growth environment with uh, the potential uh, for transitioning from from late cycle into recession. And so that's, you know, the typical playbook uh, that uh, uh, investors um, uh, will deploy uh, in such an environment. And so at a high level, that's kind of the, the, the main thing I'm seeing. Um, just that attraction to quality, uh, and particularly as it as it pertains to um, those those growthier uh, quality growth companies uh, that are participating in the in that AI uh, hype. So when you, when you say high quality, does that mean uh, investors are getting more defensive or have been defensive and are staying defensive? Um, you know, versus yeah, defense versus offense. What do you see? Yeah, so it's a subtle nuance there. So um, uh, you know, to parse this further. Uh, when people are being attracted to the, 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 the opportunity of AI and what it can provide, that's not really an expression of defense. Mm -hmm. It just so happens, however, that the, the leaders in that space um, happen to be those companies that have the highest profitability. Um, and so, uh, you know, and so the people who are going after that, they actually would describe that as, uh, you know, tilting towards uh, quality growth. Uh, but they won't tell you that they're being defensive, even though those companies have defensive properties. Right, right. So, so just to move on uh, to talk about factors, um, before we kind of get on to the next segment here, I'd love for you to define factors. It's always something that, um, you know, people think they may know, but it's, it's a bit complicated, but not that complicated. So break it down for us on, on what exactly are factors and what are the factors that we should be thinking about. Sure. Yeah. And so it's, you know, always I want to demystify because it, it sounds, you know, uh, like a black box when we, when we call them factors. Uh, but the better way to think about them is just, you know, stock characteristic or company characteristics. Um, the, you know, and so from that standpoint, anything can be a characteristic. But when we, when we speak about factors, we are really talking about the specific characteristics that we found to uh, drive risk and return over time. And so they're usually um, only about six broad-based buckets that they fall into. Uh, so uh, the first is value or how cheap a company is relative to their fundamentals. Uh, the next will be momentum, uh, which that's strictly speaking just a, um, uh, an expression of or a calculation of what stocks have worked over the last year. Uh, that's, and that, that's how you classify momentum. Uh, next, we have quality, which we, we've been talking about, and that's uh, mostly defined by the profit or how, you know, how profitable, profitable is the company. Um, similar to quality, but a, a slight derivative is low volatility. And so those, the way to think about that, th those are your companies that are very stable. You know, their uh, earnings and revenues uh, don't really change that much. And so when people are trying to get defensive, they usually are attracted to those kind of companies that, you know, they're going to earn whatever they're going to earn, regardless of what happens in the macro economy. 
Um, fifth, you have um, high dividends. And so that's something that many investors have been um, looking for in companies and utilizing for a very long time. So buying those companies that, that pay um, a, a large portion of their earnings in the form of a dividend. And then the last one, which is very simple, is just size or market cap. How big of an enterprise or company is this? Is it a large cap or is it a small cap? So those are the uh, six factor buckets that we're typically talking about uh, when we talk about factors. And they all have their unique performance profile, depending on where we are within the economic cycle. So on that, uh, given where we are in the economic cycle, what, what, what factors do you see uh, people gravitating to or outperforming in this market? So uh, I would, so the prescription I would provide there would be that uh, I'll first start with um, uh, our asset allocation team and where they believe we are in, what cycle we're in, um, which they uh, believe we're in late cycle. Um, and actually it's, I, I like how they frame it. They call it, we're, we're late in late cycle <laughs> uh, with a moderate risk of recession. And so with that, uh, the factors that um, I would prescribe in such a scenario uh, would be quality, which we've talked about, uh, and also momentum. Uh, particularly with the, with that late cycle designation. As you get into recession, you want to get even uh, incrementally more defensive. And so that's where uh, you want to allocate a little bit more to low volatility. Um, similarly, uh, divid uh, yes, dividends uh, become part of that playbook. Uh, although admittedly, uh, dividends, you know, it, it kind of depends um, whether or not they are defensive. Uh, you know, they tend to trade like bond proxies. And so it's really that environment where the Fed starts cutting rates that you get that tailwind from um, uh, dividend factors as you get into recession. And so th those are kind of the key areas that I'm seeing people uh, gravitate towards if they agree with the sentiment that, um, you know, there's economic uncertainty. Uh, and so we're either going to stay in late or, and or transition into uh, recession. You know, that being said, you know, there's, uh, you know, in order to have a market, there are always people on the other side of that. And so the playbook that, uh, you know, those investors uh, would prescribe subscribe to would be uh, something more of a pro-cyclical posture where you're you're really betting on a reacceleration of economic activity. So in in, in that uh, state, you really want to tilt towards you know not those those defensive uh, factors that I mentioned before, but um, things like value or cheaper companies that that do well when um, the overall market is, is is doing well. Same thing with small, smaller size. You know, uh, small small cap companies don't have the the large scale uh, that their, uh, their their larger counterparts have, and so when uh, you know when the tide is rising, that's when they tend to uh, you see the the most outperformance uh, with those stocks. You just saw some something you said a momentum. Like I always thought that was more of a growth uh, kind of factor, but you're you're putting that into the defensive here. So so why is that? What what do we know about momentum here? Yeah, so there's a couple of things to, to keep in mind with momentum. It's it's almost like a chameleon. It takes on the properties or characteristics of whatever had just worked, you know, because strictly speaking, that's how you define momentum. And so, you know, if you look at the last 12 months, you know, that's, you know, the market was down, as I mentioned uh, last year, about uh, just under 20%. And so what worked over the last 12 months uh, wasn't necessarily your, your growthy stocks. Although, Brian, you are right. On average, um, you know, momentum does tend to have more of a growth complexion. But that's that's mostly because, you know, when you look at the a, a business cycle, a full business cycle is usually about 10 years. Seven of those years, you're usually in mid-cycle expansion. And so that's why we normally associate 
momentum is being growthy because you're, you know, what we see most of the time is um, a bias towards momentum. I'm sorry, towards growth stocks when in momentum investing. And so where we sit right now, just because of what has worked over the last 12 months, is the case that um, momentum is not as growthy as uh, it, it, it normally is. Uh, and in fact, it's uh, uh, a little bit low beta uh, right now, which is the reason why I'm including that uh, for those investors who uh, you know, believe like I do that you know, in a late cycle environment, uh, you wanna be a little bit more defensive uh, and, and hedge against the, um, prob the possibility of going into a recession. How do you find uh, people uh, participate uh, in these factors? Um, you know, ETFs have, have come out and, and it's become a much bigger thing, at least, you know, in the retail space, easy to tap into these factors. Is that sort of the best way to do it? Do you find people building these with stocks? How do you actually uh, take advantage? Uh, what's sort of the best maybe routes to go and uh, investing in factors? So there are a lot of uh, good questions uh, or answers to your question there. Um, you know, the first thing that I would say is that, you know, factors, while they might feel new, I mean, these are really tools or building blocks that uh, uh, professional investors have been using for a very long time. We just you know, didn't um, uh, talk about them in the way that we do now. And when you think about ETFs uh, and the advent of those, uh, that, that really democratized access to these kind of types of building blocks. And so now that these uh, types of uh, investment vehicles are available, uh, when it comes to thinking about how to use them, um, there are three different ways that you know you can think about using factors. The first way would be to uh, do what I call is uh, taking a structural overweight or allocation to, to these factors. I mean, uh, they've been found to drive risk and return over time. And so one way to take advantage of that is to you know always own them. Uh, and Fidelity Canada has unique uh, solutions that, that do that for you, like our all-in-one uh, suite of products, for example, where all you need to do is specify your risk profile, and then we, uh, on the back end, create the, uh, the, the appropriate mix of factors along with um, uh, fixed income, uh, you know, to you know give you um, a risk-return profile with the you know multi from a multi-asset class solution that'll provide the outcome for you. Uh, so that's one. Yeah, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. Uh, so yeah, that was that's one way. And then quickly, just to you know, talk through the other ways that investors can use these um, is you know uh, a cyclical approach would be that second way, where a lot of what I'm talking about and sharing with your um, viewers today, you know, I'm talking about the unique behavior of these factors in different cycles, and so an advisor can tilt a portfolio. Uh, toward those factors that do well, either in the state of the economy that they're in, we're in or where, we th where they think we're headed. Uh, and then the, the last use case, and this is, we, we call it um, portfolio construction, but I always find it uh, helpful to provide an analogy for what that actually means. Um, you know, take myself, for example, uh, you know, my you know, physician says, Bobby, you've got, I've, you've got a vitamin D deficiency. And so I take a, you know, multivitamin supplement and it kind of plugs that hole. Uh, factors can actually can be used in that way as well, where you know you a client or an advisor might have a collection of, of funds that they've invested in, and in aggregate it might be underweight, something like dividend yield, for example. And so you can then buy a high dividend yield factor ETF as a way of plugging that hole in the way that I take my multi. Um, if if, uh, if for advisors who may want that uh, all-in-one approach, uh, maybe we could just talk a little bit about sort of the, how that how that works. Do the factors change within those ETFs based on market conditions? Because it's not an active product, uh, but it's not quite passive. So how does it sort of fit in between the two? Yeah, so you know, I always talk about these things as being active by design, but passive by implementation. 
Uh, and so the all-in-one approach, um, you know, what the, the, the main thing that it's doing for you is kind of managing that 60-40 allocation among risky assets, you know, those being equities, then uh, your more stable assets, those being bonds. But within that uh, equity uh, allocation, it's, it's actually, you know, taking a more simple approach and just kind of uh, equally weighting uh, all the various factors, uh, which is fine. This is, you know, a total, totally um, uh, uh, valid way of allocating two factors. Um, and then uh, what is really, uh, you know, it's really the rebalancing then that, you know, gets you back to the 60-40 where um, it, it takes that off your off of your plate and does it for you. And so that's what manages your risk return uh, profile over time. Um, the, there, as you said, factors have been around for a while. People have been investing in factors for a long time. What does Fidelity bring to the table here that may be different than how other companies or, or investors approach factor investing? Well, one of the key differences about Fidelity is what I say, what I call the depth and breadth of what we do. Uh, you know, on a fundamental side, we've got uh, fantastic investors uh, that, you know, are, are more value oriented. And then on the other side, we have fantastic investors that are more growth oriented. Uh, then across different investment uh, disciplines, you know, you've got fundamental, uh, but then you have people like me that are on the quant side. Um, and so what's unique about Fidelity is that we uh, utilize um, the expertise in all of these areas in order to build our products. And that's one of the key differentiators when you look at, um, say, our factor suite, as an example, uh, they were built using the best ideas of how to pick stocks, uh, both from a fundamental perspective and from a quantitative perspective. Um, and then, and that's, you know, and that's, you know, taking the best ideas from a stock selection, but then also uh, from a portfolio construction lens as well, given that we're an asset manager. And so those are the key features that I think differentiates our suite of factor products versus other offerings that are out there. Um, when it comes to, if you want to be a bit more tactical, uh, how do you, how does an advisor maybe sort of make those tactical moves to switch from, let's say, defensive to something more growth? What are, what are the, the indicators that they should be watching for? And is this something you got to make a quick move on? I mean, you can't, it's hard to time the markets, but how do you actually um, maybe make that switch from certain types of factors to kind of the next types of factors? Yeah, so I always uh, suggest to people that they uh, should always have about a 12 to 18 month horizon. Now, obviously you can be you know, more tactical within that, um, but the part of the reason why I'm biased against that is that you get whipsawed a lot, you know, kind of going back to uh, the prior discussion you and I just had about the debt ceiling and you know, the, you know, the market gyrations on a shorter term that can be driven by um, uh, events like that. Uh, that's very hard to do. Uh, you know, some do that, but I prefer not to play in that sandbox. And so with a 12 to 18 month horizon, um, you know, the things that you want to look at or the question that you really want to answer is, uh, are earnings uh, going to be higher um, uh, 12 months from now than they are today? And, uh, and more specifically within the earnings question is what you're really asking me about is earnings surprises or earnings revisions. So because markets, that's at the end of the day, what really drives markets are the changes in expectations. And so, you know, when you look at a lot of what I've been saying uh, on the call today, uh, it's it's my expectation that, for example, uh, earnings estimates out for the for the duration of this year are too high. And so, as we continue to progress through the year, they're likely to get revised down. And so, that negative revision is what's dr driving my defensive posture. So, for those you know who are you know contemplating you know tilting um that's that's really the approach is um you know taking a a longer horizon view and asking the coming up with the um 
a more simple forecast on uh, expectations of, of earnings on that horizon. Just on, on earnings, um, when do you think they could decline? What's it going to take? We've been hearing about this, you know, for a while now. I've had lots of conversations around earnings are too high, the expectations are too high, um, and that's conversation still going. What's it going to take for those earnings to come down? Yes, another great question. So. Um, the, the first thing to keep in mind is that earnings um, have, they have actually been coming down year to date. So uh, Q1 earnings, we just uh, finished, but they just finished reporting. Uh, and, and we actually had an earnings decline. Uh, the expectation for Q2, which is what we're in right now, is for an earnings decline. Um, but when you look at Q3 earnings and Q4 for 2023, um, that's where the expectation actually is for a pretty robust growth. Um, and, and, and where, and why I think that's, uh, perhaps a bit heroic is when you when you think about the some of the things we've talked about where um, interest rates or the cost of money has gotten more expensive um, all things on balance that has the impact of slowing earnings um, if you think about credit and the availability of it and and that declining as we've talked about again on balance that has the effect of slowing earnings and so i think that um, as we get into the second half of the year that's where we're more likely to see some of the er the negative earnings surprises uh, that could drive their earnings uh, down. And then at the end of the year, we'll be in a situation where the year over year uh, earnings growth, uh, which we haven't had yet, uh, will be in negative territory. Just have a minute left. Um, we've talked a, you know, a lot about sort of different, uh, the economic picture and how things are moving one way and, and, and maybe the expectation is that things could reverse. It's hard for people to wrap their heads around, I think, for investors and, and advisors as well. You know, as you mentioned, some investors like to be very tactical. And if you're good at it, obviously do that. Um, others, like myself, have a, um, a pretty set approach that's you know uh, based on a 12-month horizon. And again, if you're good at that, do that. Where you really get in trouble is when you try to uh, seesaw back and forth between different disciplines. Because the last thing you want to do is get whipsawed, you know, jumping to different approaches uh, that you don't have skill in. Great, Bobby. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.